Welcome to Smalltalk Reflections, a weekly podcast for discussing and promoting the Smalltalk programming language. On this episode, we talk about types. My name is David Buck, and with me today is Craig Latta. Hi, Craig. Hi, David. So, how are things this week? Oh, very good. Today, as we record this, is the solstice, so happy about that. The days are going to get longer. It's still a, still a hectic time. Yep. It's all about the light. <laughs> yeah. Well, this week we're going to talk about types, and uh, as we discussed in an email conversation, you and I, you said the types are still a rather contentious issue. Oh yeah, it's a classic. Well, let's start by talking first about what types are, and then we'll go into what kind of types Smalltalk has. Basically, uh, a type is, well, first of all, there are various definitions of it, so it depends on which definition you go by, but a type is really a... um, specification on how to determine the type of information stored in the bits in the computer. Back in the days of assembly language, all we had was labels. And in a label, you could put any data you want. You could treat it like a float. You could treat it like an integer. You could treat it like a string. And there was no no way of stopping you from treating it whatever way you wanted to treat it. So types were an attempt to formalize the way information was stored in the computer and how to interpret that structure. Yeah, well, with just a label onto a, a piece of memory, I, there's no way to know what kind of information is in there. And so you kept getting uh, type errors where you thought something was a float when really it was an integer. Mm-hmm. And you misinterpret it and you get a huge integer and it's the wrong answer. So types were a way of uh, formalizing what is in the integers. I don't know which was the first type language, but I do know that. Uh, C was an early language that had types in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Pascal was around uh, around that time as well, and Pascal was really big into types. And this, these were all compiled languages, and the the types that they had there were were called static types. They were known to the compiler, and in fact, they were specified by the programmer. So they were additionally called manifest types. Right. Static types then are types that are known to the compiler which is a little bit tricky. It means that either the programmer provided them or the compiler was able to deduce them. Both are called statically typed. Uh, there are some techniques called uh, type inferencing where the, uh, the compiler can figure out what types things are even without you explicitly saying so. So uh, those are static types. Dynamic types are uh, types where the object themselves or the, the data itself knows what type it is. Whenever you're using that data, the way you use the data depends on what type the data is, but the data knows the type. And this is what Smalltalk does. This is what Ruby does. This is what um, various other uh, object-oriented languages do as well, is they, they have the objects take care of their own types. And so uh, there's no restriction on variables and parameters. So in a sense, what I tell people is Smalltalk is what we call strongly typed in that you cannot make a typing error because the types are all pointers to objects. In an object-oriented system, or more importantly, a message-oriented system, the notion of types uh, has a twist to it. You're not so much concerned about state 
if you're if everything's interacting via messages, then you're really more concerned about the message interface that something has rather than how it's actually represented in the computer's memory. What we also find is that the world has become very used to declaring types. Um, in languages like Java, which are object-oriented with types, they use types as the mechanism for knowing which methods are available and for actually looking up the methods. So if you compile a method in Java that says, uh, oh, let's say, call a method called uh, toString, that toString method is actually an index in a table called a virtual table. And depending on what type your, the, uh, the variable is, it knows which index to look it up in, and that just points off to a method. In Smalltalk, that's not the case. Smalltalk never uses a virtual table. In Smalltalk, we always do a runtime lookup of the method. So it doesn't matter what type the object is. If it has a method that responds or that has a certain name, then Smalltalk will call it. And this is called duck typing. If it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it must be a duck. Yeah, and that meaning of uh, if something is like a duck, that's all determined by its message interface. So again, we're getting back to um, behavior rather than state um, being the, the way you express a type. And that gets important because with, um, with this messaging interface, uh, it doesn't matter how you implement the message. If you implement the message, then um, then you can be used in well polymorphically with anything else that calls that message. Right, and indeed, this gives the compiler a free hand to do dynamic things at runtime, like adaptive optimization. It can be, you know, recompiling or re regenerating native code for your behavior based on how you've been calling it and how it's been performing and how it might be changing over time. Mm -hmm. It gives you lots of uh, lots of power and lots of ability. The complaints we hear from the 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 mainstream world of static typing is, well, you're going to have all sorts of errors in your program because you you don't have the compiler checking things for you. Yeah, and that's that's ironic these days, uh, where most systems have adaptive optimization. The compiler is checking things for you all the time and, in fact, is uh, making your generated code more efficient based on how it's actually getting used. And the other thing is the compiler only checks certain classes of errors anyway. So uh, this is, in my opinion, just another class of error that has to be checked at runtime if, if it needs to be checked. Right. So the compiler is not going to detect necessarily index out of bounds errors or divide by zero errors or probably the most uh, popular one, nil pointer errors, the compiler is not going to find those anyway. Another thing that ameliorates not having everything statically checked up front is having a good exception handling system. And most static systems where the authors feel they have a great dependency on upfront checking by the compiler, they don't have any good way of handling errors at runtime. And in fact, um, what we do in Smalltalk is that once we develop our code, in fact, as we're developing our code, we're running it and testing it all the time. And those errors that you mentioned, those instantly will bring up a debugger if they're not handled. Um, we can change code very quickly in the debugger if there's something really stupid that we're doing. Um, my, uh, my claim has always been, I can get to my debugger faster than you can get through your compiler. Right, that's almost always true. Yeah, in Smalltalk, there's a very strong culture of unit testing. 
And the overhead of doing that is not so great because there is this great dynamic exception handling system that we can draw upon. Yeah, and that, let me just point out as well, in Smalltalk, when you compile a method, you're compiling one single method. You're not normally compiling the whole system. In fact, there's almost nothing that requires you to compile the whole system over again. And um, when you're compiling a single method, it's so fast you don't notice. Right. It, it's so fast that it's not it's not a problem. Right. We have a much finer grain of execution modularity. And a lot of that uh, finer grain is allowed by the lack of typing. If we had types in our system, then we would have to start recompiling all sorts of things all around the system in order for the types to continue to work. Right. Yeah, this is one of the fundamental concepts of late binding. You want to create a system in which there are as few interdependencies as possible. So you're free to change more things uh, later in time. And in fact, uh, types will often cause um, what I call domino effects, where if you change a type here, then you have to change that type elsewhere as well. You have to change more code elsewhere in the system. And because you change that code, you have to change other code. Uh, so types, types will often have that kind of effect. Right. So with um, complaints about Smalltalk not having uh, static typing, uh, we see that as a big advantage uh, instead of a disadvantage. Uh, the, the problems that the compiler finds by static typing are ones that we get to very quickly and we can find quickly. And in fact, they're very easy. The most common kind of uh, static typing problem, it's uh, undefined object does not understand colon. So basically a message sent to nil. And you have that problem in Java anyway, that you cannot distinguish between nil and another object without explicitly testing it. The type system doesn't catch that for you. Right. Uh, what we find in Smalltalk is that there are huge advantages to being able to have dynamic typing. Uh, the one that we've mentioned so far is the fast compilation, so we don't have to recompile the world. But static typing gets in the way when you're trying to come up with dynamic designs. Uh, there are cases where you're trying to implement something like a proxy. And with a proxy, you want an object that doesn't understand any messages. And whenever you send it a message, it has a an exception handler on it that will do some appropriate operation for your for that message without actually having that method implemented for it. Those are possible without a uh, static typing system, but they're virtually impossible without code generation with a static typing system. Right, that's one feature where you end up having to fight the type system and the compiler to do what you want. And I find that in static languages, I am spending most of my time fighting the compiler to actually do what I want. Yeah, actually, I'm uh, developing a, uh, a program up in C. I'll be discussing this later in other podcast episodes. But um, in, in this particular C program, I am constantly having to cast from this type to that type to that type because uh, the type system forces me to work in a certain way. So it's not really providing me an advantage at all. I have to do casting all the time anyway. And ultimately, if, the, if you can get away with that, if the system will let you do that, then you really don't have a strongly typed system. You have a weakly typed system because you can subvert it. Yeah, and let's, uh, let's discuss the difference between strongly typed and weakly typed. And it's exactly what you said. If the compiler allows you to subvert the type system, then it's a weakly typed system. 
if the compiler doesn't allow you to subvert that and always requires you to follow the type system, then it's strongly typed, which means, strangely enough, Smalltalk is strongly typed because you're not allowed to break the type system. You're always, variables are always pointers to objects. Right. And by that logic, C, for example, is a weakly typed system because you can cast things. Yes, very much so. Uh, Java is pretty much a strongly typed system. Although there are casts, they are safe casts. So uh, that that could be considered strongly typed, I believe. Um, C also has unions, which allows you to declare two different types and overlay them on the same memory. So you can put something into one type of the union and pull something out of the other type. Mm -hmm. and, and that can break typing as well. So strangely, yes, Smalltalk is strongly typed, but it's not statically typed. Right. Uh, another funny thing about statically typed systems is that they, um, when it gets to uh, collections, they have to have, well, you have to have collections of something and statically typed systems don't know what they have collections of. By default, you have to provide that information. In Java these days, uh, you use generics to do that. So you have collections of something. Uh, and that gets really, really painful. After a while, if you have a map of ordered collections of persons, then you have a rather complicated type that you have to deal with. So that uh, that can cause problems for maintenance and it can cause problems for understanding. The other funny thing about collections is, are you allowed to put a Lamborghini into a collection of cars? And the answer to that question is very subtle. It depends on who you are and what kind of access you have to that collection. So it, it gets to be a very complicated question. In, in Smalltalk, we uh, avoid the question by saying, yeah, anybody can put anything in. It's up to the people who take the things out to know what they are. Right. So um, we just have a very simple approach. The flip side of merely having shorter build times because you don't have to rebuild the world uh, is that you can actually rebuild parts of your program while you're running it. This means you can refine parts of your program while you're demoing it. So that's very that makes prototyping with a client very fast and fluid. They don't have to go away for you know some amount of time while you figure out how to rebuild the world. You can actually incorporate new features you know as they think of them. The funny thing is, I uh, I once had a demonstration that I was doing to a client in New York, and uh, during the demo, we had uh, one screen that was showing some clients, a list of clients that they had. And at the top of the screen, there was a, um, a search box where you could search based on the client's name. And it would sort of dynamically, as you type in maybe four or five characters, it'll do a search through the database for names starting with those characters and pull up you know, the first few hits. And they really liked that feature. So they asked, is it possible to do that based on telephone number? Because uh, you know, we often will look at people based on their telephone numbers. And I said, uh, give me a few minutes here. Let me, let me finish my presentation, and then we'll talk about that afterward. Mm -hmm. So I finished my presentation, and after the presentation, I said, okay, now you asked about telephone numbers. Uh, I'm going to keep the interface running here. Don't look at what I'm doing here. I'm going to bring up a browser, add one line here, and then come back to my user interface and refresh it. And look, there is a field for telephone numbers. And I start typing a telephone number in, and it does this filtering. And they were just amazed that I was able to do that so quickly. Yeah, exactly. I was able to do that quickly because I didn't have a requirement to recompile the whole system after I finished it. 
Yeah, and this becomes even more vital when you get into the area of debugging. Um, you may have a lot of state built up through running a system that you don't want to lose in order to diagnose and fix the problem. So it's very powerful to be able to change individual pieces of the program independently. You can get to a place where an error occurs and look at an unhandled exception in the debugger and write the code you need to write and restart from that context. Yeah, very powerful ability. Um, many people believe that uh, debuggers are a, um, a waste of time. Uh, we don't think so. Debuggers are actually very, very useful not just for debugging, but also for understanding how parts of the code work that you don't understand. Yeah, if you, had, if you didn't have that ability, that, that debugger, there's potentially a whole bunch of state built up through running the system that you'd have to throw away or access in a very difficult way and have to make a lot of deductions about instead of being able to just use concretely in the moment. In fact, uh, in uh, in some debuggers, I'm thinking, for instance, of the uh, VisualWorks debugger. If you get to a point where you call a method, but that method isn't understood by the object you sent it to, there's a menu item now that says, define the method for me. And you can define the method right in the debugger. And then it puts you into that method. And right in the debugger, you can write the code for that method. Right. So it's a pretty cool ability. So some systems, they're finding that the declaring the types all the time becomes a real pain. This, this is especially true when you start getting into um, block closures or what we call lexical closures. Um, if you have a block that, where you're passing in arguments and, and you need to declare the types of those arguments all the time, that gets to be a real pain. Yeah. So uh, some languages, and I'm thinking C-sharp here, are starting to put in type inferencing. And type inferencing allows them to sort of guess or to sort of infer uh, what type the variables are going to be. That may get around the part of you know, having messy looking code because of all the types, but it still doesn't get around the part of having the, uh, the method lookups be done according to a, a virtual table. And that's still a problem in many object-oriented languages these days. You just don't have the dynamic nature that you need in order to do proper um, method dispatching based on message interface, not, not based on type inheritance. Right. There are other dynamic things that you would like a system to do, uh, not just optimized performance like an adaptive optimizer does, but you also may want to know about various redundancies in your type model. That's another sort of information that you can glean from watching the system as it runs. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot you can get from a running system. In fact, um, there is a technique called um, method wrappers, which lets you put code around a method to uh, monitor or to do things when that method runs. And uh, you can gain some pretty interesting information. You can get performance measurements on all methods you can um, count how many times methods are called. There's all sorts of stuff you can do with that. And uh, a lot of that depends on this dynamic lookup. If you do the lookup dynamically, then you have the ability to replace the method with one that is a, um, a, a wrapper method, which is a bit trickier to do in a statically typed language. Probably not impossible, but more difficult. Right. Now, if, you, uh, if you're using Smalltalk and you do want to have some sort of uh, 
type inferencing going on, um, at least in visual work. There is a, an add-on product called the Roll Typer, and that does type inferencing in Smalltalk and shows you what it thinks the types of those variables are. In fact, when you're um, creating uh, class methods for an existing class, uh, the system will go through and sort of by default look at all the references to those variables and determine um, what messages are sent to them and try and guess what types those variables might be. But those are just guesses. Right. Yeah, that, that's sort of where I was going with uh, using runtime information to analyze your type model. Is It can be useful for documentation. It can be useful for introducing a newcomer to your type model, especially if it's very big. And, and of course, it can be useful in helping a, a live developer refine the type model during development or even as the application itself is running. Mm-hmm. One interesting language, by the way, uh, it's a new one coming out, is Dart from Google. Dart has the advantage that it, it does have this dynamic lookup mechanism, the same thing as uh, Smalltalk and Ruby, but it has optional types. Mm-hmm. And optional types always... Um, well, it confuses me a bit because basically with an optional type, if you know the type, then you put it in. If you don't know the type, then you leave it out. The problem is this. If you're in a shop that wants to have no warnings coming out of the compiler, then um, and you should be in a shop that does that. You shouldn't have warnings coming out all the time because you're going to miss the important things and because there's such a volume of unimportant things. So if you have errors or warnings, you want them to be meaningful. If your shop decides that they're going to um, have uh, warnings for variables that have no types, then you want to then put types on all of your variables and have no warnings. If you're not going to do that and you turn the warnings off, then um, you're never going to know if your type has the proper, or if your object has the proper types. You, there's no point putting the types in at that point. So I don't see where the, the sweet spot in the middle is between no types at all and types everywhere. Yeah, in fact, I would go so far as to say that if you're declaring types at all, you're giving up on having good adaptive optimization. Yeah, in fact, I once asked one of the architects of um, of Dart, uh, if you put in a type, does it have to be correct? And he says, oh yeah, if you specify a type, then it had better darn well be right, otherwise our optimizations are going to be wrong. Right. Ah, okay. <laughs> so if the type changes, oh, well, yeah, then you have to go and change the types. So you get into this problem again of having to manage two things, not only the code, but also the whole type hierarchy and the whole type system. Right. To me, it just seems like you're getting into this manual bureaucracy to manage information that the system can manage for itself at runtime better than you can anyway. And the funny thing is, as I see type checking as just being a consistency check and nothing more than a consistency check. Are you being consistent with the way you're using this variable? And so the compiler checks the consistency for you. You say you're going to use it this way and you do use it this way. Right. Um, and that's all, that, that's all that the types are giving you from the point of view of a design. Yeah. And if that's all you want to know... A dynamic system can tell you that sort of thing just as well. It can just as effectively tell you you're using this object in a strange way. You're sending these strange messages to it. So uh, I guess with the dynamic nature of Smalltalk, we find it much better to work without the static types. Um, now, many people will say that um, 
there are advantages to dynamic to static types over dynamic and some of them I will agree to yes it catches some classes of errors with those errors we run into them in the um, runtime system but we run into them very quickly and we fix them very quickly but the other thing that people say is that uh, the type system allows them to do uh, better autocorrect or the tool set is better because it the tools know what messages are valid for this variable. Hmm. And certainly in Smalltalk, if you're doing, let's say, a refactoring and you're renaming a method, if that method is implemented on lots of different classes for different reasons, Smalltalk is not going to know how to separate out you know, this class's uh, method called this versus another, method, another class's method called this. Well, certainly that's true if you've never run the system before. But if you have a lot of actual runtime information from running the system, your system can do type inferencing, and it can tell you that kind of information. Right. The tools aren't quite as uh, uh, available and polished necessarily, um, but uh, it, it can give you that information if you, uh, if you look for it. Uh, but for just a default refactoring from a browser... Uh, it's going to want to rename all those methods without, uh, unless you have manual intervention and say only do these ones. Well, again, it, it will want to rename them all if it doesn't have any uh, runtime information with which to make inferences about the types. But if it does, it, it could actually know for itself that, oh, I don't actually want to rename all of these things because only this subset of them are really involved in this app. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's something beyond the type system. And uh, uh, it's something that uh, we, we would have other techniques, other approaches to, uh, to address. What you also find, though, is that with, um, with a type system and with that um, you know, prediction of what methods are available, once you get uh, deep into generics, that all kind of disappears anyway. And it's very hard to for the compiler to determine what types the variables are at that certain point to the extent that it can um, it can do um, the suggestions that people are, are getting used to that uh, the the code help. Right. In the end, I prefer to use the word interfaces rather than types to make it clear that we're mostly talking about behavior. We're mostly talking about message interfaces. And when we use the term interfaces in Smalltalk, we're not necessarily talking about a formal structure. We're talking fairly informally about you know, a method or rather an object that understands these messages conforms to that interface, but we don't necessarily specify it in the programming language. Right. They're an emergent thing. Right. Anyways, I think that was a pretty good discussion on types. I think we'll wrap up here. We're available on iTunes now, so you can subscribe to Smalltalk Reflections on iTunes. You can contact us at smalltalkreflections.thiscontext.com. You can visit our blog at smalltalkreflections.blogspot.ca and leave a comment there. Or you can post a review in iTunes. Craig Ladder performed the music and edited the podcast. See you next week. See you, David. Bye.